And now to introduce today's speaker, we are joined by Dr. Brandon Tempty, who is the current Chief Medical Resident at Providence Portland Medical Center. Dr. Tempty has great interest in medical education, and he helped spearhead the creation of the Residents as Teachers program at the Providence Portland Internal Medicine Residency. Dr. Tempty regularly attends in both the inpatient and outpatient settings and is always eager for new and better ways to educate our residents and our medical students. He will be going in July 2022 uh, to start pulmonary and critical care fellowship at the University of Wisconsin. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Tempty. I will turn it over to you. Yeah, thanks so much for that nice introduction. Um, so good morning, everyone. Uh, so today I wanted to talk about uh, clinical education, which since I've been through my short career so far has been a really big passion of mine. Um, this talk, while it's titled Effective Inpatient Teaching, um, really this is for everyone. This can also be used in the outpatient setting. Um, there's kind of a paucity of data in the inpatient setting, um, so I wanted to talk about that. It's where a lot of my passion lies as well. And just to preface, uh, I am mostly an enthusiast in this topic. I, I am not an expert, uh, so I'm looking forward to the end where we can bounce some ideas off each other and answer some questions. Um, so to jump right in, so disclosures, I don't have any. Um, as one of my critical care attendings says, I do not have enough boats yet, so I do not have any disclosures. Um, our objectives that we are going to hopefully cover today, uh, we're going to start by reviewing some of the steps of clinical reasoning, um, which I think will be important for everybody. We do this on a day-to-day -day basis, usually without thinking about it and really thinking about uh, the steps we take with intention um, is, is really interesting and helps make us better clinicians. We're going to go through some of the barriers to inpatient education, uh, how to set expectations before we all get started, um, and approach goal setting. Uh, we're going to learn about the ever elusive diagnosing the learner. Uh, we're going to go through a few uh, effective rounds and bedside teaching tools that hopefully you all can take away and then how to wrap everything up with feedback. So starting with why does this matter? Uh, <clears throat> in my eyes, at least, I think we all have a duty to train the next generation of physicians. We were really brought up by some outstanding teachers uh, throughout our careers and having the ability to pass that forward, I think is one of the great pleasures that we have in medicine. Um, we also have, uh, on top of the medical students and residents that we all teach on a pretty regular basis, uh, we have an increasing number of APPs coming into the workforce um, who really benefit from the role of clinician educators. Um, being able to educate efficiently and effectively the content that you care about is really important uh, going forward to lead your teams. Um, and then also, Working with new learners, uh, those of you that do it quite frequently know that this is one of the best ways to keep ourselves you know, fresh on the new knowledge and really maintain and grow our own knowledge base. The things that we look up, the things we learn from the, uh, the learners we do, every talk that we make, um, there's, there's more to be gained. Um, and then understanding, like I said, the steps of clinical reasoning, uh, we do this every single day and knowing these steps really well just helps us be better clinicians uh, overall. So we're going to jump right into uh, discussing the steps of clinical reasoning and the development of illness scripts, um, which may be, some of you may or may have not heard about to this point. Um, so this is uh, 
Dr. Julie Bowen's uh, article from 2015, which is uh, 2006, which is a really great uh, representation of how we go through clinical reasoning. And you can see over in the right all of the steps that are involved. So as a lot of this is going to look very familiar as well. So we start with you know getting the patient's story, uh, data acquisition, a lot of our subjective and objective materials, um, talking with the patient, looking through the chart, and then from there, creating a problem representation of, of who is this patient. Uh, from there, after we've correctly you know, said who's going, who's this patient, what's going on with them, we start generating some hypotheses or our kind of broad differential diagnosis. And from there, we select the illness script that makes the most sense. And like I said, we'll talk about illness scripts in just a second a little bit more. Uh, once we have selected our correct illness script, we ultimately make our diagnosis and plan. Now, this is not as easy as I'm, I'm making it sound, and it's not as easy as a lot of us are reading it, as we can remember from medical school and residency. There's a lot of, you know, knowledge, context, experience that goes in over long periods of time to make us really good at this clinical reasoning problem process, and there's a lot of nuance to it. And I should also mention that it's different for a lot of the different diagnoses that we see. The more familiar we are, the better we'll get with them. Um, the two most important things, if you're gonna remember from this long uh, list of things on the right here, is problem representation and illness script selection. A lot of the time, if we can make an accurate problem representation of the patient based on their history and their data, uh, we can often lead ourselves to the correct illness script. And what are illness scripts? So illness scripts are basically the cue cards that we use uh, to create an organized summary of what we know about a certain disease uh, to be able to quickly recognize patterns. This is the basis of how we go through our clinical reasoning on a day-to-day -day basis is pulling from these well-developed illness scripts uh, that we have seen over time. Um, the things that typically will play into our building of an illness script over time is seeing the clinical signs and symptoms that are consistent with that disease, what predisposing conditions typically lead to that disease, and does the pathophysiology underlying it all make sense for the patient that's in front of me? Um, you know, more often than not, I will put this as kind of the, the who, uh, the who, the what, and the why. So I'm sure we can all picture in our heads right now one illness script. So take a second to pick an illness script in your mind. Pick a common disease that you see day to day. What does it look like? What does it typically present as? Who are the people that come in with this disease? Um, and what's the underlying path of physiology? Um, and just keep that in your mind uh, for a second. The example that we're going to use is, is really the one out of that Bowen article, uh, just because it's such a great example of a typical illness script. But just for an example, we're going to look through this case here. So if I give you the predisposing conditions of a young middle-aged man who comes in with a history of alcohol abuse, recently started on hydrochlorothiazide, who is now presenting with acute onset of severe monoarticular pain in the first MTP, with some joint swelling, warmth, erythema, without fever. What is that going to make you think of? I'm going to give you a couple seconds just to really build for this exact example, what is the most likely diagnosis? What is this illness script that I've just given you? And a lot of you are going to say acute gout flare. Um, and now we think back 
our predisposing conditions, our signs and symptoms make sense. A lot of us did that without thinking too much about it. Um, and does the pathophysiology ultimately make sense? Um, and here we've got hyperuricemia leading to crystal deposition, which leads to acute inflammation and nasty pain um, that can be precipitated by alcohol use and hydrochlorothiazide. So great, that's all stuff that we were able to pull out, but this is an, a perfect example of what is an illness script? What is the cue card that I'm using for acute gout or that you're using in your clinic on a day-to-day -day basis for acute gout? Um, so how do we go about developing these? Uh, most often, novice learners do not have these, uh, these broad illness scripts. They rely very heavily on biomedical knowledge learned in first and second year medical school. Um, just because they haven't had the experience to go out and see them just yet. And I think acknowledging the difference in where everyone's at in developing illness scripts is really helpful in being able to teach um, folks that are at a different level because we're pulling it out of these well-formed illness scripts and they are thinking about it in a very different way. Um, so the uh, intermediate learners, as we start to kind of move up a little bit into maybe a sub-I intern level, um, you start to organize some of these clinical features with some of the experiences that you have out in the clinical world. And now that you've seen uh, gout, maybe you've seen septic arthritis, you're able to compare that differential diagnosis. Uh, that compare and contrast is really important to be able to say, you know, while usually septic arthritis, if, even though that can be monoarticular with really nasty pain, that typically has a fever. They're usually quite ill, so this looks more like gout. Um, and then experts are a little bit more of an advanced step up with that illness script. So resonance and attendings um, quickly retrieve a lot of advanced illness scripts from long-term memory um, to really be able to build and accurately rank that uh, differential diagnosis. So when we're going through our day and we're thinking through uh, very quickly what this patient could be afflicted by, we're using these cue cards of efficient history, uh, physical exam, and data uh, to be able to um, you know, put the clinical picture together, but also to know when this picture doesn't quite make sense and when we need to dig a little bit deeper. So does this not fit an illness script that I have for any of the conditions that would cause monoarticular arthritis? Is this a little bit odd? Do I need to look this up a little bit more? And that leads us to the next point of of uh, a different way of thinking of type one versus type two thinking. And a lot of us uh, have probably seen this already, um, but the type one thinking is about how 90% of, of attending clinicians will go through their day. It uses the illness scripts and the frameworks that you already have stored in long-term memory. We can also think of this as the light bulb going off or the aha, I've seen this before. Um, so when you've seen it before or something makes sense, it fits your illness script, we're using that type one intuitive thinking. When it doesn't quite make sense or we haven't seen it yet, we're using a lot of what's called type two or analytical problem solving. It's a much longer process. It requires us to look up the answers. Um, but for early physicians, this is how they spend most of their clinical time while they build these illness scripts. Uh, they have to build them by looking up the answers, by con comparing and contrasting diagnoses. Um, <clears throat> you know, I, often you'll use this I use the confused test taker as an example here, but we, 
I often use this in day to day to know, you know, is this something that makes sense with my illness scripts? Can I move on without having to look this up a little bit further? Is this something I have to use type two for? So it's really something that I use with intention on a day to day basis. Uh, since using too much type one can be dangerous if, if this fits, if it, we think this fits with something that it doesn't. Um, so that's a little bit about clinical reasoning um, that you know I hope applies to all of us. We can take a few things away, even just for our own practice. Now we're going to go into uh, inpatient education, and we're going to start with some of the barriers uh, that we have to to inpatient education. And I want you to just for a second think of your own personal barriers, whether they were teaching to you or teaching from you um, to inpatient education. And I'm sure a lot of you thought of time. So when we study this over and over again, uh, this is the largest perceived barrier. Um, what we're going to do throughout some of the uh, later parts of the talk is we're going to go through some uh, ways to mitigate this barrier. Uh, the other things that can pop up, uh, there are some learner factors, teacher factors, and system factors that can play a role, but it's to much less of a degree. It's about 10%, 20% of the reasons why people say teaching doesn't happen on the wards. You know, learner factors are almost always just related to time, um, It can also be a lack of interest in the subject matter. As we're going to talk about, we're teaching to adult learners here, and we're going to go over what that means in just a second. Um, so they have to be invested. Uh, teacher factors are usually the least in a degree. Uh, very rarely does confidence or competence play a role. We're all experts in, in something that we care about, and we all have something that we are interested enough in to pass along to the next generation. Um, and then you know, prolonged preparation is also another thing that people worry about. Um, but a lot of effective teaching can happen without prolonged preparation. Um, and then system factors, sometimes the lack of incentive and lack of resources, but this is also usually not too much of a barrier. It's usually the time aspect. Um, so the, the next part we're going to talk about is really setting the stage and creating expectations. This is probably one of the most important steps of, of getting your time with a learner started is, is letting them know uh, how teaching will occur and how you'll lead the team over the next few days. Um, and it also starts with the formation of a safe learning environment. Um, and so to start, you know, who are we teaching? So who are we helping create these goals and expectations with? And we're doing it primarily with adult learners. Um, so adult learners have a few very important uh, principles that I want to make sure that everyone has, has seen. Um, so adult learners, they have an accumulation of great life experience and knowledge. And why this is important is because if you can tie some learning into previous existing knowledge or new experiences and knowledge that they're currently having, it is very helpful for them to be able to integrate it into their own long-term memory. Um, adult learners need to be self-directed, goal-oriented, and relevant. So what they're learning, uh, they have to have some ownership, some control over it. Um, and it has to be something that they care about, that they think they're going to see again in the future. Um, and then they have to know what are the steps that I'm going to have to take to get there. And 
as I was just saying, the active participation is, I think this is the most key point to, um, to adult learning is it has to be active and motivation is absolutely uh, key. If we do a lot of passive learning in medicine, i.e. shadowing, it's going to be a lot more difficult for adult learners to gain these concepts. And I think this happens far too often in medicine that we do this kind of passive shadowing of watching procedures and watching the attending take the history. Um, successful learning for adults only really happens when they're the active participants. And then the last major point of adult learning, again, this isn't all encompassing, but this is kind of the pertinent points to inpatient education. Um, timely feedback is going to is, is going to be very, very helpful. It should be as close to the moment as possible. Um, we're going to, as I said, discuss at the end what uh, effective feedback can look like in a teaching setting, but um, feedback is very important. Now, when you're setting your expectations, I have this first because it's by far and away the most important. We need to, for our learners, and especially for our adult learners, create an area of psychological safety. And now what I mean by this is that we've created a space where learners can develop their skills without worry of being wrong, without feeling like they're gonna be punished or berated or anything like that. And I think a lot of us do this quite well, but it's something that truly takes intention. Um, I always see the team whenever I start awards week um, as a collective brain working towards the good of the patient. Uh, being wrong is often a time for growth and helping them explore their clinical reasoning a little bit further and probably a chance for me to learn as well. Uh, I always say at the beginning of the rotation, we are very grateful to have uh, four or five very intelligent people on our team that are dedicated to treating our patients uh, very well and learning the most we can. Um, I'm really glad that we can have everyone's thoughts and opinions on this team. Um, you know, positive verbiage can really help build psychological safety. We'll talk about this a little bit in feedback, but using phrases like you're nearly there, or I always like if, if you got the question wrong, it's because I'm not asking it correctly. We all went through first, second, third, fourth year of med school. Uh, that knowledge is locked in there somewhere and it's our job to take it to bring it out. Um, during the meeting at the beginning of the week, I also like to spend some time uh, designating when will teaching and feedback occur. Who's going to do it? When's it going to happen? How is it going to happen? Um, that way it won't fall to the wayside. Um, things can get very busy in both the inpatient and outpatient settings. Um, and having a schedule time of Tuesday at 2 o'clock, I'll be teaching about shortness of breath using a whiteboard talk. Don't worry, there will be coffee and donuts. That is a really effective way to make sure that your teaching sessions do actually occur. And then tell them how you'll be teaching on the words and some of the tools that you'll use um, that you'll see later on. Um, and then scheduling your feedback is, is, is very important. Um, and I always start by probing learners, what do they want to be working on? This may not be all encompassing, this may not be everything they absolutely have to work on, um, some of it will also be up to you, but this is something that will help you know what are their goals or priorities because like we just learned with adult learners, they need to be actively engaged and it has to be relevant for them. And so the things that they really care about, you know, they'll, they'll more often than not tell you. Um, and then strategizing how rounds will occur, again, just more of who, how, and when the teaching is going to happen. 
but are you going to do bedside teaching primarily? Is it going to be mostly table and teaching rounds? Uh, I always emphasize to folks to try to use a, a mix of approaches. I think that's often the most effective. Uh, it gives you a chance to um, you know, have the table and teaching rounds where you can really explore that differential diagnosis. You can really have an in-depth conversation about evidence-based medicine um, and the thinking process really comes out in that arena. The bedside teaching obviously also has some really wonderful aspects where you can see more about how they interact with the patients, give feedbacks during encounters with the family. Uh, you can have some time to, uh, you know, be a positive role model in those situations, show them how you do a certain physical exam finding, um, et cetera. So using a mix of these two approaches can be really successful um, in helping our learners grow. Um, and so we move on to the ever elusive diagnosing the learner. And hopefully at the end of this section, we'll have a few uh, tips and tools um, to go with. So the first thing I would probably have you start with is just a general framework of where is your learner probably at? And I tend to think that the rhyme um, uh, mnemonic is, is typically best. The um, uh, This is also what's used by a lot of local uh, schools for grading where their learners are at. So you probably will see this at some point. Um, and so the stages that we typically think of, we'll start with reporters. So this is the person, usually a third year, second year med student that shows up on the wards for their first internal medicine rotation or whatever it is. And they are to this point pretty good at getting history from a patient, doing an exam, reporting back the data and the findings that they've grabbed out of the chart or with their peers. Um, and they're able to build you a story, but not quite able to mold it into a differential or any management decisions. Um, the interpreter is able to take a lot of that information and now is able to start building a problem list and a differential, mostly because they have now seen enough problems to build those illness scripts. Uh, so they can interpret a lot of those results, build them into illness scripts and, and, and give a differential. The manager for um, a lot of folks starts to happen during kind of sub-I, maybe early intern year, uh, maybe for some problems, they're even starting to do it in third and fourth year, um, but they're able to give the clinical reasoning for the diagnosis that they've chosen or the list of differentials they have, and they're able to kind of tailor their therapy to the individual uh, patient in front of them and really take ownership of the care of that patient. Um, and then the last step is educator, which is intern to resident to attending um, and everything in between. So they are able to utilize the self-directed learning principles. They're fairly independent um, and appropriately are able to not just give their clinical reasoning for a diagnosis and therapy, but the what and the why. And, using evidence-based medicine and also able to instruct and teach back why do they want to do the things that they want to do. Um, so now on to how to diagnose the learner. So before we start this section, I just want to emphasize again, it this cannot happen unless there is that space of psychological safety. Unless you're able to uh, have them not be afraid to fail and show you where their room of improvement is going to be, it's going to be very hard to move through this step. And also, the other thing I want to remind everybody about is 
you do not have to fix you know everything that's going on with the learner uh, all in one session. It's often best to pick one thing that's that's troubling them, one small achievable step uh, discovered by the strategy of further questioning we'll talk about uh, to find that area of improvement that you can really help out with that day. Uh, so what I typically use is something that was taught to pretty much all of us that go through PPMC uh, by Amy Deckett, who uses it here. She's one of our awesome MedEd faculty. And I uh, really like this as well. So it's the five W's. Um, and the first step, and this is going to come up over and over again in all the teaching tools, because it's probably the most important thing. And it's 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 the what. So getting a commitment of what, what do they think is going on? What do you th they think the diagnosis is? What do they think the treatment plan ultimately should be? Getting a commitment is going to instill ownership in the patient care, and it's going to have them be invested in their active learning. And so often this, this was uh, taught to me in the past as I want you to put your chips on the table. Some days I'm going to take them away. Some days you're going to win, but you can only play the game if you put your chips on the table. And I I really like uh, the way that that was that that was taught to me. I think it's a really effective way of getting the what out of people. Um, you know, also important is going to be the why and the supporting evidence behind. You know why they chose their differential. It's really the evidence for and against. And here you're going to want to have your teaching script, your illness script ready to go um, because it's going to be how you kind of match it with the learner and you see, well, what does their illness script look like for this problem? Now using open-ended questions is going to be your best friend. Um, so throughout a lot of the teaching tools that we talk about, uh, using open-ended questions should be the first rule. Um, the next step of the five W's is the what else. So trying to get their differential diagnosis. Um, so giving the learner, well, so this is a monoticular arthritis. Um, what you think that this might be gout. What are some other things that could cause that? What What is the supporting evidence for this being gout? What is the supporting evidence for this maybe being septic arthritis? What speaks against septic arthritis, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, a lot of the time, I put this little green bar here because with early and novice learners, you've usually found that one or two things that you can focus on with them. You're usually just about done. Um, and now the, but the advanced learners are gonna need a little bit of, of extra probing and extra pushing. And that's what these last two are primarily used for uh, in my eyes. So the next one is, what are you worried about for this patient? Um, and so if, you, if you're going through a chest pain differential and someone has given you uh, a perfect illness script for ACS, they've told you why they don't think it's a pneumothorax, they don't think it's a PE for these reasons, and you agree with them and you and you really applaud them on their clinical reasoning skills, and you can take it a step further. So so great, you've correctly identified that this patient you now fits a very good illness script for uh, ACS. Now, what would what are you worried about? What if this patient becomes hypotensive? Uh, what will you do then? If this patient now has crushing, repeat crushing chest pain again, uh, what is our next step? If on day four, this patient crashes after they get PCI, what do we do then? 
Um, and it really helps explore um, their progressive care of diseases and ability to manage complications. And there's often something to teach within that for intermediate and advanced learners. And the last one really for a lot of our advanced learners is, is okay, so we've made it through a lot of those steps very well. They have a really good grasp of this particular problem. Um, what else can we be learning for this clinical question, for a clinical question? Um, so if we bring in the uh, self-directed learning, you know, what do you want to know? Uh, and um, you know how to do it, but why do you know how to do it? Uh, answering those questions really will give you uh, something else to explore with the learner. Uh, now, when we go through the five W's, we're, I'm often bringing them back to um, the clinical reasoning uh, formula that we went through before. And so once you've identified that area of improvement, uh, maybe in the differential diagnosis, uh, they were missing a few things that you think is really pertinent. So was that a lapse in you know, not getting enough patient history? Was that a missed or a misinterpreted piece of data? Uh, maybe their problem representation was was very inaccurate and uh, you would have uh, had this patient's one-liner be a very, very different thing. And often you can flip that script a little bit. And so if they present someone to you and they're just a, a little bit off and they said, I, you know, I think this is a PE because they're short of breath and they have chest pain and they were coughing a few days ago and it's more consistent with ACS, you know, well, what if I flip the script a little bit and say that this is a 66-year-old guy coming in with a history of hypertension, diabetes, and tobacco use, who's coming in with substernal chest pain, worse with exertion, and, uh, you know, now what do you think? Um, so making sure their problem representation is right is really important, their differential is appropriate, and then have they built the illness scripts to, the, to a point where um, you're comfortable with it. Um, now that we've kind of gone through the primary tool that we often use for um, uh, diagnosing the learner, we're going to move on to some of the teaching tools, uh, at least that I use for effective inpatient teaching. And this is really the meat of the talk. Uh, we're going to go through three tools that I'm hoping we can take away and bring on to our next clinical rotation. Uh, a little bit of just general rules first. Um, I put this horrible cliche um, as the first line. Um, just again to emphasize, you only need to pick that one or two things a day to teach. This does not need to be an all-encompassing thing. If this is the first time they're seeing pancreatitis, they don't need to walk away from that teaching session necessarily knowing everything there is about pancreatitis and often that'll be overwhelming. Uh, so these small gradual steps are, are really important um, and then really emphasizing that area that you found for improvement and then applauding them when that area uh, is actually followed up on. Um, switching up how the teaching occurs, we said before when you're setting your expectations, uh, who, when, and how is it gonna happen? Uh, don't be afraid, afraid to flip the classroom. Uh, like I said, we've got a lot of great brains on our teams. It can be a great way to see where your learners are at. Um, you've got an outstanding senior resident on a lot of your teams. Um, this is a great time for them to practice their teaching and their leadership. The interns, this is an outstanding time to have them get a little bit of practice with evidence-based medicine, looking up clinical questions, moving on in that, in that clinical problem-solving pathway. Um, and then also remembering 
I believe as Osler said, it should never occur in the absence of a patient. I think this just brings it back to the relevance point of adult learners. I mean, we always need something relevant in front of us to have the learning stick. Um, and so it should really never occur without uh, a patient in front of you or a patient in mind. Um, and a common myth that happens, uh, especially with inpatient teaching, is that bedside rounding takes too much time. This is mostly coming from the learner's eyes, uh, which I feel I can say, because uh, I, I had this thought as well when I was in residency. Um, but taking a f just a few patients to go uh, see at the bedside, uh, especially if they're very ill or their new history and physical and the new admissions, um, you know, that can often be something that at the end of the day, you grab some really valuable information and you're able to, uh, to teach a lot better, uh, really without taking up much more time at all. Um, another general rule, have a few areas that you really care about. I mean, this is a cool space to just be able to pour some time and energy into being uh, an expert in an area that you're interested in. We all have interests in medicine. You know, picking one and just having five to ten minutes ready to go about it can be really helpful if you ever get stuck. Um, and then telling them what they learn, reinforcing it later in the week. Too often in medicine, we spend our time uh, going through and seeing one problem being taught at once, and then we don't see that presentation of that disease for months, maybe sometimes even years. Um, and so if you can have a point that you talked about with them, you have an area of emphasis you went over, that repetition is really important. You know, we'll often put these concepts into working memory and short-term memory, but as we know, if you don't have that repetition, um, there's a strong chance it's never going to get solidified into that long-term memory. So I think this is one area that we can really be improving on, especially in the wards, is having that level of repetition so that the next time that we see the patient encounter, we've seen and talked about it a few times instead of just once, and then, oh goodness, we're seeing it three months later again. Um, now the first uh, tool that we're going to talk about uh, is something that was primarily developed in the outpatient setting, and uh, most of these were. Um, so they can be very easily used in the outpatient setting as well, but they can also be uh, flipped around to be able to be used in the inpatient setting. And this first one is the one-minute preceptor. Now this is primarily faculty-driven, um, and so the teacher has to do most of the uh, of the of the movement in this in this model. Um, it's really best for early and intermediate learners. Um, so the first step, this is going to look pretty familiar, is get a commitment. So again, what is your diagnosis for the patient? Put your chips on the table. Step two is going to look awfully familiar as well, uh, probing for supporting evidence. So what supports your diagnosis? What maybe uh, speaks against other diagnoses? What maybe speaks against the current diagnosis you just told me? Um, and really kind of seeing where they're at. The part of this is tied into the five W's that you may be doing already for each problem. And then really the arm of this intervention is teaching general rules and providing your pearls in clinical reasoning. And so what I mean by this is this is your time to maybe reframe the case as we were talking about before. You know, if I flip the illness script, then what would you think? Um, how would it change if this was pleuritic chest pain? How would it change if this chest pain radiated to the back and was severe in onset and tearing? 
um, making sure that you always stick to those one to two teaching points in the moment um, is going to be really important to not over over uh, overload the learner. Um, the next step after that is reinforcing what was done correctly. Um, I think this is the uh, these last two steps are the steps that we probably miss more often and are not in the five W's. So, uh, you know, we all like positive reinforcement. Uh, we always like to know that we've done something well. So if you've got something that you really cherish and emphasize uh, that they did correctly, either in their presentation and their clinical reasoning, um, really make sure that they know that that was something that you care about so they do it again in the future. Um, and then correcting mistakes, you know, I don't necessarily like the phrasing of that, but uh, providing immediate feedback in a positive manner is really important. And in this steps, I tend to avoid words like wrong and instead use words like preferred treatment or diagnostics um, and presenting teaching as something that matters to all of us um, and why it matters to the resident in front of you. I think having a time where you can relay when you learned this current uh, lesson or when you learn this topic helps build strong relationships with learners to not feel so distant from them, uh, but also help give them another case to solidify. And when you do find something to talk about, make sure they've got a clear idea of what to do next and the specific path to achieve it. And when they do achieve it, make sure to applaud them for it and reinforce that they did they did a great job. Um, so snaps is the next thing. Uh, this is similar to the one minute preceptor, but it flips everything on its head. So this is learner driven um, and not teacher driven. Um, it snaps tends to outperform other uh, learning modalities such as the one minute preceptor, um, although it attempts to accomplish a similar concept. Um, it's really good for exploring the differential clinical reasoning and promoting self-directed learning. It can really be good for intermediate and advanced learners that want to build some more autonomy. Um, but both the learner and the preceptor need to be aware of all the steps before getting started. And you'll see why in a second. Um, so the first step, uh, summarize, you know, give me your one liner with the pertinent history and exam. Um, narrow that down to your top two, three differential diagnoses. Um, and so the, uh, uh, and then the next step will be kind of your why. So what speaks for and against each proposed diagnosis? Um, and again, this looks very familiar to what we've seen in the past. This is the learner giving it to you. Um, so this could be, again, to go back to the chest pain example, um, this is a 53 year old female with a history of um, hypertension coming in with acute onset chest pain for three days. That's worse when they exert themselves. Um, my exam was fairly unremarkable. Um, their, tropo their troponin was mildly elevated on their labs to 45 and their EKG didn't show any ST wave changes. Um, you know, this could be ACS, PE, pneumothorax, whatever chest pain differential they pick and what speaks for and against it. And then from there, they're gonna, they're gonna probe you about their uncertainties of the case. And they say, well, you know, this could be a pulmonary embolism. I don't have any, I don't have a deep dimer. I don't know if I should get one. I don't know if this is worrisome enough to, 
to need to get a D-dimer. I don't know if we should just jump straight to a CTPA to make sure that it's not a PE or if I'm just good calling this ACS. So they're going to probe you with what they are worried about with this patient and with this case. Um, and then they'll outline their next steps of their plan of how, how are they going to investigate these top diagnoses they just gave you. Um, and then from there, with their self-directed learning, what questions are they going to be looking up? Um, so at the end of their case, after they get done presenting, you know, I th think it's ACS. Um, I want to trend the troponins, aspirin, statin, um, the whole package. Um, but my question to look up is maybe how effective is D-dimer in ruling out PEs? What scoring systems can we be using to, to rule out PEs? Um, and so this can really help them solidify these concepts, the self-directed learning. But again, this is a great tool, but it has to be done uh, where both parties know what's going on. Um, and the last one uh, has my favorite title, um, and I think it's it's a really excellent tool that I've actually just started using recently for advanced learners. So this is really great for advanced learners, and the, what it is is it's based on patterns. It's based on illness scripts that are that are common uh, that we see every single day. This is um, this is something that if if you're looking across the street and you see someone that looks like your aunt Minnie. It walks like her. It's wearing the same coat that she always wears. It's probably your Aunt Minnie. And so if you're looking at a case for an advanced learner that really wants to build repetition with illness scripts and build autonomy, uh, you can have them go and see the patient first, um, and then they come back to you 30 seconds to one minute with their one-liner, their chief complaint, their diagnosis, and their treatment plan for the patient. And that is that is it. It's very brief. They're coming in with chest pain. Uh, they're, they're a 50 year old male coming in with chest pain. That's worse when they take a deep breath. Um, with and I think that it's uh, I think that it's a PE because the CTPA showed a pulmonary embolism. I'm going to start them on low molecular weight heparin, um, and then you go see the patient afterwards. Come up with your own individual assessment and plan and then debrief with the resident uh, once they've completed uh, the case. And so this is, this is again, really good for the times when you have a good illness script. Um, it's good for rep recognition of patterns. It's good for autonomy. It's good for repetition. This is not good for complex cases. Anything that requires type two thinking, as we talked about before, this is really good to help build that type one thinking. Um, it's also not great to build your differential diagnosis with. Um, so those are a couple of the tools that we use most commonly for both uh, novice and advanced uh, and intermediate learners. Um, now really quickly to wrap up with successful um, feedback, um, I put some gifts on here because we always say feedback is a gift, um, but I would say it's really up to us to package it correctly. If we deliver it correctly, it can be an exit box on a holiday morning. Uh, if we do not package it correctly, it is just a lump of coal wrapped in today's newspaper. Um, so a quick guide to successful feedback. It really should be given immediately or as close to the event as possible. But I think the key to learn here is that 
learners will only be able to receive feedback if they are in a place to receive that feedback. So immediately may not be great. Sometimes it may need to wait until later in the day, especially if it was a difficult patient or is a little bit of a traumatic event um, or they're in a area of their peers and it needs to be individual feedback. Picking the time and place is just as pro uh, important as proximity. Um, and again, the positive verbiage here, you're 80% of the way there, you nailed the diagnosis, would it be all right if we take a few minutes to review treatment options for this patient, uh, really helps you uh, have that psychological safety for feedback. Um, you know, difficult feedback, like I said, should be really in private. Um, the goal here is to have most of our feedback be the formative feedback we give throughout the rotation um, with only summative feedback at the very end. And the, they should know what is the summative feedback going to be. Um, so tend to use this um, from, it's actually from a podcast way back. So feedback is an art. Um, and so the first step, ask with open-ended questions, how did that go? How did that feel? Uh, a very non-judgmental way to open your encounter. So how did that feel to you? Um, it sets the stage for the rest of the discussion. And then after they kind of give their perspective of how things went, you can reflect and summarize yours uh, with, with the learner. Um, you know, I noticed some of, of these things what do you think about uh, think about that reflection? And then uh, teaching and giving your assessment and perspective, sticking to a few things um, that you think are key for them to move forward. Um, I also want to put out there that feedback sessions are a huge have a huge possibility for bias. Um, this is something that really is could be its own session in and of itself and needs a lot more time. Um, than I have to offer to discuss today. Um, but it really, there's a lot of literature that shows that attendings tend to describe uh, women and minority learners by personality traits, and they tend to evaluate men by their competency. Uh, so being really cognizant of the language that you're using, I would encourage everyone to be having a discussion about this and, and really look up a lot of uh, the new literature that's coming out about this topic. Um, I, I want to make sure that this gets uh, this gets talked about. Um, perception uh, is also a very important driver of behavioral feedback. And so you often, uh, when you're doing behavioral feedback, it can be very tough because maybe this is in the concept of professionalism lapses um, and they maybe had an issue with nursing. And so if you present it as the perception of the other person is this, um, it disarms the conversation a little bit more. And everyone, then that perception is very important because to succeed in medicine, we all need to work very well with the people on the rest of our team. Um, and every learner that you come across, almost all of them, they just wanna be successful physicians in whatever best way that they can do it. and working on that team and making sure that the perception of their team is a positive one uh, for them is a really important lesson that all of us learn usually at one point. None of us can do this alone. We need to be successful members of teams and helping them be their best in a team really helps. Um, and then just also remember during your feedback, people are whole people outside of work as well. Um, there's a lot of stuff that can be going on in their lives that affects their work performance. 
So someone, if they are not performing how you would expect or say, oh, that was a little weird for that person, um, always remember the three Ds. So divorce, maybe there's a relationship problem in their life, depression, maybe they're struggling with, uh, with mental health concerns and burnout um, or drugs, the, maybe they're having a problem with substance abuse. Um, so really imploring that. And if something did not go as you would expect just saying, how, how are things going outside the hospital? Um, now, when we do identify something that we want to focus on, uh, I tend to use the SMART goals. I don't talk too much about this uh, just for the sake of time, but identifying an area and speaking, sticking to specific, measurable, achievable, and relevant and time-based goals is really important to make sure they know exactly what and by when they need to learn and for what reason. Um, this really fits well with all the adult learning principles, which is why this is how I tend to make a lot of my goal setting, um, even though it's based on a pretty old concept. Um, and then I'm sure everyone has seen this at some point. You should read more. This is the this is my like pet peeve of feedback, um, but it is still important for them to be able to go out and do that self-directed learning because that's super important for adult learners. So I would say once you're, if you find yourself wanting to say this to a learner, I would say if you're going to have them do the self-directed learning, put it towards a specific endpoint that promotes clinical reasoning. I want you to read this by this uh, to be able to compare and contrast these and these diagnoses. Uh, and then we'll go over it later. So again, I use the example of gout and septic arthritis here. Um, PICO questions can also be really great for advanced learners um, to answer a specific question and bring it back to the group. Um, so some conclusions here, um, you know, understanding the clinical reasoning process, developing illness scripts is great for both teaching, but both are, are also our own personal practice. Um, always setting the stage um, is really important with that psychological safety. Um, taking the time to diagnose the learners with the five W's and always be asking why. Um, get used to some of the teaching tools. Try them out, see which ones work best for you. Um, and then ensuring that feedback is always timely um, and it's always using the principles of adult learning. Um, so I've got, looks like some time for uh, questions. Um, I just want to say thank you to all of our med ed faculty here. Um, I've been in an education scholars program up at OHSU too, and they've been really wonderful in uh, teaching a lot of this this content. Um, so I just, I have a lot of people I want to say thank you to, but I know I'm running short on time. Well, and we would definitely like to say thank you to you, Dr. Tempty. Thanks for bringing these concepts back in front of us. I think some fresh new ideas for many and I know a great uh, review and reminder for those of us in medical education. Um, we do have some questions posted here uh, that I'll start to feed to you. Um, first off, uh, we have a, a comment here from one of our listeners. I work on nursing education and COVID negatively impacted the amount of clinical time that nursing students had. Did COVID, did COVID impact medical student rotations as well? Um, so any comments that you have on that, Dr. Tempty, and maybe even expanding a bit more broadly in terms of um, how, how education has been influenced by COVID, much learning um, going virtual. Um, I know many of us missing certain opportunities for connection, so love to hear your, your perspective. 
Yeah, that's an excellent question. It's actually been something that we've been talking about a lot here and obviously at a lot of other academic centers. I mean, when COVID first hit, we noticed with a lot of the medical students um, that we were getting here uh, or that we were getting as fresh new interns, um, their clinical rotations had been all but shut down for a year, some of them up to a year and a half. Most of them had not seen a COVID patient. Um, so we had actually a lot of similarities with it, what it sounds like happened in nursing because that um, that clinical time for them to be able to, like I was saying, build those illness scripts and build that clinical experience, that's a required time to be able to step into intern year with enough comfort level to know you know, uh, what are the steps to taking care of these patients in a basic, even just a basic way. So I think it's starting to get better now. It seems like everyone is being integrated more into their rotations um, because I think it was pretty dramatic what we saw uh, for what happens when you take away some of those clinical experience. And also you take away that shared brain of being able to, even at medical schools, um, have shared classrooms where people can can bounce ideas off of one another and be part of that that active learner group. Um, so I think going forward, uh, we're going to probably be using some hybrids of some of these learning modalities. Um, but absolutely, it was um, it was something that affected the the, the medical residents and the medical uh, students as well. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for your thoughts. Um, another question here going towards the end of the talk when we were discussing feedback. Can you give an example of phrasing you use for giving constructive and by that perhaps more negative um, feedback, some words or phrasing that you have found helpful? Yeah, so a lot of the the phrasing that I, I end up using just revolves around that positive verbiage uh, and so you know if it was if it was something I, I never like to use the word wrong I like to use the word you know like preferred or something like that if it's related to a diagnosis a lot of the issues that I see that require strong constructive individual feedback is a lot of either like professionalism lapses or maybe there was some signs of burnout coming in a patient patient room and I think just disarming the conversation a little bit, starting with that debrief in uh, a really non-judgmental way of just how did that feel for you? Um, there's there's a really good session that unfortunately I didn't have too much time to go into that's, um, you know, uh, debriefing with good judgment and that has a lot of really outstanding topics, but the basis of it um, is really to keep asking those open-ended questions in a non-judgmental way of um, you know saying you know the perspective from my end was I saw that this was maybe a 78 year old with chest pain um, when I think through these cases I tend to have uh, a framework where I'm thinking more about the pleuritic chest pain um, and given the aspects of your clinical reasoning and when it's behavioral issues I tend to use the uh, I tend to use the perspective aspect a lot because that is not judgmental. It's not attacking them um, and perspective is important. If the nurses had a perspective that maybe didn't match your own in that moment, um, perspective is still everything and you want to make sure all the members of your team um, care and respect about you just the, just the same way you care and respect them. Um, so I think using the perspective uh, approach is really important as well. 
Yeah, thanks for that. I have found that reminder just incredibly helpful in your talk just now um, because it's really focused on something objective that this was the perspective or this was perceived and um, allows you to approach it from a way that feels um, less personal. So thank you for that tool. Um, I uh, have a question here. I find that I am always absolutely fascinated and somewhat challenged by the level of uncertainty in medicine um, for a whole variety of reasons, um, and, and particularly sometimes identifying why uncertainty exists, um, whether it is just an area that cannot be known or that we simply need to look a little deeper. I wonder if you have any particular um, thoughts um, or advice about how you approach um, uncertainty or different types of it within the medical education setting. I think just throwing it out there as this was the uncertainty um, in this case, I mean, medicine is very complicated and the farther you get through it, the more you realize that there's a lot of nuance that goes into it and everything's not totally clear. It's not gonna fit this perfect gout illness script and that, that's the fun part of this. And so using that, uh, that setting the stage of, I've got five brains here to think about these very complex problems. Um, and I'm excited to be able to use everyone's mind to figure this out. I'm not always gonna have all of the answers and, and neither are any individual on this team. Um, we've all got great things to bring forward. So if you've got an idea, please say it. Um, and then when in those moments, something's unclear, um, just acknowledging it and just being like, sometimes medicine is is very complicated, and this is a this is a situation for me that doesn't perfectly fit my illness script for uh, somebody's chest pain, for example, or their diarrheal illness or whatever it is. Um, and we're going to need to do a little bit more digging and deeping, uh, digging and diving, because I am not entirely sure if this fits for me. And just acknowledging that this does not quite fit. You think through your clinical reasoning process, you share it with the room, and you say, you know, if I thought it was going to be this, I would expect to see blank, 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 blank. You go through your illness script. Um, but having that ambiguity just out in the open, I think, is really, really helpful. Um, it really opens up the whole room to being comfortable in that space. Great. I'm hearing just transparency, acknowledgement of that uncertainty, and kind of almost taking that as an opportunity to say, this is the fun part. Now we get to find what questions remain and what are we going to go look for. So thanks. Yeah. That helps. Um, we have only just about a minute left or so. So um, we can conclude not to put you on the spot, but Dr. Tempty, you're in that sweet spot of chief resident where you're close to the learners and also an excellent teacher. Any parting thoughts? Um, Pet peeves from the residents, pearls for us as teachers, any any parting wisdom, Dr. Tempty, thank you. Um, I think we're just in an outstanding, and especially in medical education, whether you're a teacher on the wards um, or whether you're just, uh, you're, you're someone who comes into contact with them infrequently, we're in this really awesome position to pass along the things that we care about. Um, and so I think you can find a lot of joy um, through your day to day. Uh, talking about those things you care about, passing them on to learners, seeing that aha moment in their mind 
um, when you've passed along something you truly care about. I love to talk about mechanical ventilation. I did it yesterday for all the residents, and it's my favorite. It's it's my favorite thing about my job. It's my favorite thing going forward um, because I know that's something I'm interested in, and it's something that's complex for folks. And I had the time. I was grateful to have the time to take a deep dive in it, and to just have the ability to pass that on to people. It's just it's one of the great joys joys in medicine. And, and so find that thing that you're passionate about and pass it along to, to the other folks because they really enjoy it and they there's a lot of great that comes from it. Fantastic. Thanks so much. Um, keeping the joy in our day-to-day -day work. Um, thanks, Dr. Tempty, and we'll see everybody next week. Thank you.